text for our sermon this morning is 2 Samuel 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, Saul, leaning on his spear, saw me and called to me. And he said, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought him them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. So David said to him, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, the song of the bow. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And the weapons of war perished. Well, we'll call the kids down to the front for their children's sermon. Well, the Bible story that we read this morning has two parts, and I want to explain to you the first part. So let's review what has happened. An Amalekite man came to David. Now, Amalekites were evil people whom God had ordered Saul to destroy. Saul was disobedient to God. Not only did he not destroy all the Amalekites, he even let this one join his army. Well, the Amalekite came to tell David that Saul was dead. And when David asked him how he knew, he told David that he killed Saul. Now, was that true? No, that was a lie. Last Sunday, we read that Saul killed himself by falling on his own sword. This man said that, that Saul was standing up, he was leaning on his spear because he was so badly hurt. The man said that Saul asked him to kill him. You know, I'm going to die, but it's taking so long and I'm in so much pain. Please just stab me with your sword now so it'll be over. Again, remember, we know that that's not true. Saul killed himself. So why would the Amalekite lie and say that he killed Saul? Well, he did it because he thought he would get a reward. He thought that, that, that David would be happy that Saul was dead. Now he could finally be king. Well, two things happened right away. First, David tore his clothes. In the old days, people would rip their robes as a way of showing their great sadness. Secondly, David ordered one of his soldiers to kill that Amalekite. 
And as the man lay there dying, David said to him, This is your own fault, because you yourself admitted to killing God's anointed king. Now, there are some important lessons for us to learn here. First of all, life and death are God's. He decides when we are born and when we are to die. No one else must ever end his own life or end another one's life because they're old, weak, sick, or suffering. The right to end the life belongs only to God. The Amalekite was lying, but even if he was telling the truth and he did end Saul's life because poor Saul was hurt and would die anyway, it was still sin. He had no right to take God's work into his hands. Secondly, and I think more importantly for us, God hears everything we say. And when we lie and say that we've done something, God's law says that we're guilty of that sin. Well, you say, but, but I didn't do it. But you're forgetting something very important. Sin is in your heart before it is ever in your hands. When you do something bad, you've already thought about it in your heart. And the Bible says even the thought of foolishness is sin. Even if you don't do the sin, if you think about it and your heart enjoys it, you're guilty of it. Loving a sin makes you guilty of that sin, even if you don't ever actually do it with your hands. There are men who brag about all the bad things that they've done, and many times they're just lying because they think people will think they're cool or tough. Boys are especially tempted to this. They hear someone telling stories and they go, yeah, I did that too. I took candy from the store without paying or I lied and told my dad I wasn't the one who broke the window. Well, our story teaches us that God holds us accountable for the sins of our hearts, not just the sins of our hands. If you have never stolen from the store, but you lie and say that you have, you are showing God that you love the sin of stealing. Actually doing something is less sinful than loving it. God hates stealing. His law says you shall not steal. If you lie about stealing, you're telling God, I love what you hate. The only reason you haven't stolen from the store is because you haven't had a chance where you thought you wouldn't get caught if you tried. When the Amalekite lied about killing Saul, he was showing the sins of his heart, what he loved. He loved money so much that he would kill God's king in order to get it. And since Israel's king was a picture to God's people of King Jesus, he was really saying, I killed Jesus for a reward. Remember, God hears our words and he sees our hearts. And just because you haven't done something doesn't mean you can't be guilty of loving that sin. And our story teaches us this lesson, and I'm sure you can see it. After we pray, you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may 
grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of Thee and our Lord Jesus Christ. For His name's sake, amen. Well, we're going to look at our text in its two parts and drawing some practical ramifications from them as we go. And I've called the two parts of the chapter, The Lie and the Lament. The Lie. Well, several things jump out at us in the opening section of the chapter. A, there's no question that the Amalekite is lying. Scripture has just told us how Saul died. He committed suicide. The text doesn't leave any room for doubt. It's not unclear or obscure and thus capable of being interpreted in different ways. Now, let me just interject uh, briefly here off script. If I treated the words of some scholars the way they treat God's word, they'd drag me into court and sue my eyeballs out. 1 Samuel 31.5 says, When his armor bearers saw that Saul was dead, doesn't say that he assumed he was dead. It doesn't say that his being dead was the armor bearer's assessment. God's word tells us he was dead, and the armor bearer saw that. There's no question that he was dead. The Amalekite said that Saul was standing there leaning on his spear because he was badly wounded, and he makes no mention of an armor bearer. B, there's also no doubt that the Amalekite was nearby when all this transpired. He saw what happened and he saw an opportunity. He took Saul's crown and armband with the intent of cashing them in for a reward. C, the Amalekite invented the story of killing Saul in order to curry favor with David. He assumed that this is what David wanted to hear. Now, he had to inject himself into the events, but he had to make it look like it was an act of mercy. Well, there's no way he could have survived his wounds, and he begged me to do it. I couldn't let the poor man just lie there suffering like that. D, there's no doubt that this lie would have worked in any other kingdom on earth. If the Amalekite had given this story to any of the heathen nations around Israel, he would have been rewarded. The fact that it blew up in his face in Israel is very significant. And finally, an Amalekite, that is, a pagan, a man hated of God, was enlisted in Israel's army, the church of God. There's certainly something very wrong about that. Now, some scholars have suggested that he was just a scavenger on the battlefield, but that doesn't hold with what the text actually says. A man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Now, let's make some practical observations on these features of the narrative. And first of all, remember that Old Testament Israel was a combination of church and state. Now, this incident shows us something that we neglect to our own peril, namely, that those outside the covenant are always a danger to us. I mean, if apostates are a danger to the church, how much more open unbelievers? Those who refuse to bow the knee to God's infallible word, who ask us to tinker with the church's doctrines, to to soft-soap our dogmas, to accommodate the spirit of the age, they can never be trusted, ever. This man was an Amalekite, the ancient foe of God's people. Did they expect that this venomous serpent had turned into a kitten, or to borrow the language of the, the Bible, a goat turned into a sheep? Israel's violation of the antithesis had grown so strong that their truest spiritual and political foes were allowed to live among them and were even enlisted in their army. 
And to highlight this fact, Scripture tells us that David has just come back from fighting whom? The Amalekites. And now an Amalekite comes up to him and says, hey, reward me, I just killed Israel's king for you. And we may frown on David because he's run for shelter to God's enemies. He probably shouldn't be surprised that this Amalekite assumes that he's heartlessly opportunistic like the Philistines. But the fact remains, an Amalekite was in Israel's army for shame. At lunch two weeks ago, Dr. Kerner expressed his bewilderment, which I share, bewilderment at the fact that so many small rural communities made up of ostensibly conservatively conservative and traditionally minded people so often accept apostate ministers in their churches all across the Midwest in little socially conservative communities like ours small country churches are getting bible denying liberals limp-wristed sodomites and rabid wild-eyed blue-haired feminists installed as their ministers what makes you think that someone who hates all your beliefs, history, heritage, and values is going to serve you honestly? What makes you think that they won't use their influence to pervert and corrupt? And whether these ministers are sent from the higher-ups or called by the lower-downs is irrelevant. They're still filling pulpits in places as socially and culturally opposite them as light is from darkness. In other words, what makes you think that an Amalekite will be loyal to Israel and Israel's God? We live this politically every day. Creatures who hate us because they don't share our history and faith lord it over us and label us bigots if we complain about having the life our ancestors built for us inverted, perverted, and destroyed. A few weeks ago, I talked about the fear of being called names, that we've got to toughen our skin and ignore it because Cain always hates Abel. Esau always hates Jacob. The Sanhedrin always hates Christ. The world always hates the church. And we will never win the battle by tailoring our stance on political, theological, or moral issues to the world's liking. You can concede everything and it still isn't enough because you're still alive and you profess to believe that Christ is king. And if you'll back down from what God's law says because someone might call you a homophobe, an anti-Semite, a racist, a backwoods, ignorant, redneck fundamentalist, guess what you're going to get called? Let the media start a campaign to equate the name of Christian with colonialism, white supremacy, homophobia, or racist, and let's just see how long the bulk of professing Christians last. The mainline denominations have already sold out. They ain't coming to our defense. Listen, this is not, not a social-political statement. It's the Bible's doctrine of the antithesis. For the church, the sole arbiter of right and wrong, the only standard we submit to is the law of God, not the opinions of conservative news anchors, or pop music stars, or social media influencers giving any credence whatsoever to their opinions is as foolish and dangerous as enlisting Amalekites in Israel's army. Early in Saul's reign, he was commanded by God to annihilate Amalek. He rebelled spectacularly, you'll recall, and now under his later administration, Amalekites 
hated foes of God's church, of whom God said, I will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. These people were serving in Saul's army. And the story proves that this Amalekite had not become a true member of the church. He hadn't assimilated to the life and values of Israel. And it's obvious that Saul and the rest of Israel were foolish for imagining that he would. You didn't kill Amalek, and now an Amalekite's running around trying to collect a reward claiming he's killed you. Twice, in the space of a few verses, he has asked who he is and where he's from, and both times he answers, I am an Amalekite. In fact, he tells David that he's the son of an alien, an Amalekite, which means he was born in Israel to an Amalekite. Two generations had not made him any more of an Israelite than if he had come in as a hostile invader two days ago. You can't turn a sheep, a goat, into a sheep by giving him a position in the church, the denomination, or the committee. It's as simple as that. I've said this before. I'll say it again. We are at war. Every single force in the world that is not biblical Christianity is at war with us. We may say and we can say that we want what is best for everyone and we love everyone, but they don't want what is best for us and they don't love us. And things are only going to get worse until we wake up to this fact. Now, one final observation that I feel is very important to make. This was pretty much the point of the children's sermon. Jesus said, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What we see in this passage is an application of divine justice. God's justice is inexorable, which means it's inflexible, uncompromising, and unavoidable. Our society likes to cry out about justice, but it doesn't have the least clue what it's asking for. Because God is not swayed by emotions or appeals to emotion. He rules with perfect, unbending righteousness. Now, the Amalekite had not, in fact, killed Saul. He hadn't even put Saul out of his misery. He boasted of having done so, and therefore he took upon himself the guilt of an action he hadn't done when he boasted that he had. And this made him liable to the death penalty. Now, God's law often strikes us as harsh and uncaring. But that's because our sinful nature loves sin. It angers us to find God wholeheartedly condemning what we love. For instance, in Deuteronomy 22, there are a series of laws regarding sex crimes. The law says, if a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from among you. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. Now, a little reading between the lines will show that this is not cruel, as it is frequently accused of being. The principle underneath the procedure is this. If the woman cries out for help, then it is obviously rape. In the city, ancient construction being what it was, 
A woman's cry for help would have been heard. If there was no cry, then this was a consensual act of adultery. Now, if it happened in the countryside, that is to say, away from people, we give her the benefit of the doubt. Had she cried for help, no one would have heard her anyway. And so, in fact, the law is slanted in the favor of a woman who may actually be guilty of adultery. Never mind all the what about, what about things. God isn't stupid. He, his law allowed for investigation and acquittal of the innocent. But you can't possibly say that the law was unfair. Several years ago, during the congressional hearings about the appointment of a certain Supreme Court justice, charges were made that this candidate had sexually abused a woman 30-plus years earlier. Now, if we apply the Deuteronomy 22 law, we would say that if the charges were true, then the woman making the accusation should be stoned as an adulteress along with the man. She had over 30 years to cry for help, and she never did. And therefore, if the thing ever actually took place, it was consensual. And she was as deserving of death as he is, or was. It says more about us than it does about God's law that we take issue with its justice. This Amalekite assumed that he would be rewarded. And as I said earlier, in any other place on earth, he would have been. It was because Israel had been trained in God's law that this attempt blew up in the Amalekite's face. David had been catechized in God's law. David knew that God's law said that the anointed king was a foreshadowing of Christ. And therefore, no man might lift his hand against God's anointed without penalty. To rebel against the king of Israel was to rebel against Christ. The Amalekite admitted to killing the anointed of the Lord. Now, the fact that he hadn't actually done it is irrelevant. He would have had the opportunity been there. We know that because he claimed to do it. And this is something people fail to understand. The Amalekite wasn't beaten with a phone book to coerce the confession out of him. He lied voluntarily. He thought he would get a reward. He made the mistake of thinking that God's people are opportunists. No, we do not prefer a little extra money or some extra little benefit at the expense of violating God's law. Had Israel been like any other nation on earth, untaught in God's righteousness, assassinating the king for his rival would have been rewarded. That was the Amalekites' assumption. And so he incurred the penalty for a crime he didn't commit, but would have had he had the opportunity. Is this a frightening thought? Yes. Yes, it is. And this truth is powerfully expressed in question 113 of our catechism. We're told that the 10th commandment requires, quote, That even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. Now the command is, thou shalt not covet. Violating the other commandments is visible. I mean, I can see if you've murdered or stolen. But coveting is an invisible sin. And so the commandment teaches us that that all God's law applies primarily to the heart and the internal acts, which are the most sinful. External acts 
are the least sinful things about sin. The sinfulness of sin lies chiefly in the fact that man or men love something which God hates. Committing the act is merely the external expression of the internal wickedness of loving what God has forbidden. You know, it's not uncommon for men to boast about things they've never actually done, but God's law holds us accountable for our words. And that means if you run around bragging about how many women you've slept with, God's law will damn you as an adulterer. You may not have done all that you boasted of, but that's only because you haven't had opportunity. The fact that you lie about it proves that it's only because you didn't have the opportunity. And it proves that you love that wickedness. You love it enough to boast about having done it. Jesus said, by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. It may be enough for your wife to say, I was just looking, but it won't pass muster on judgment day when you face the Christ who said, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now let's move on to the second part of our passage, which is the lament. Now this is a song that David wrote in honor of Saul and Jonathan. It was called the Song of the Bow. And I want to focus on verses 24 and 25 as the heart of the song. We read there, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. What I want to specifically draw your attention to is the fact that David is not lamenting the present defeat as much as the fact that the string of past victories has come to an end. And I suggest to you that this is a healthy way of viewing the lives of those who have led us because it allows us to rejoice in God's handiwork even when the instrument is corrupt. Right? Like no one wants to use a broken tool for a job, but no one's going to reject the final product product just because a broken tool was used. So you'll notice that the song is full of gratitude for the good things God has accomplished during Saul's reign, but you'll also notice that nowhere in this song is there the least bit of justification for Saul's wickedness or his rebellion against God. There's thankfulness for the benefits, just a simple giving of credit where credit is due. I'll think for a minute about what has been achieved in Israel under Saul's rule. Well, first of all, the former party spirit of the nation has been largely wiped out. Instead of being 12 tribes associated loosely with one another, they were unified into one kingdom. You go back to the era of the judges, and you'll see what I mean. Samson, who was born from the tribe of Dan, is approached by men from Judah who want to arrest him and surrender him to the Philistines. They say, what are you doing? Don't you know the Philistines rule over us? I suppose a sadder admission has never been made, but this wasn't a one-off uh, thing either. Really, it reflected the, the spirit of the Israelites at the time. The judges were mostly territorial judges. No one really governed the entire nation. It wasn't until Samuel that this started to change. His annual preaching circuit was a big help. Samuel also established schools of the prophets, and this created an infrastructure of communication across the nation that had never existed before. 
it made it a lot easier to get a message out to everyone. We see it work when Samuel calls everyone together for Saul's coronation and when Saul calls everyone together for his first battle against the Philistines. Saul's rule created a true nationalistic spirit among God's people, which they had never really had before, at least not in their own land. That, that old us-against-the-world attitude they had in Egypt was largely eroded by the 40 years in the wilderness. Saul's reign brought it back. Secondly, Saul's reign gave Israel some previously unknown prosperity. Remember that first battle between Saul, Israel, and the, and the, the Philistines? Saul and Jonathan were the only ones with swords. The rest of the Israelite army were carrying cattle, prods, hoes, shovels, pitchforks. Now, as David says, the ladies are dressed in scarlet and they wear gold jewelry. Now, just so you understand, scarlet, that particular shade of red, was a very difficult dye to obtain in the ancient world. The reason why scarlet, blue, and purple have this millennia-old association with royalty is because those dyes were incredibly difficult to obtain, and therefore only royalty could afford them. When I checked the spot price of gold for this sermon, it was around $1,700 an ounce. So I think you can understand that what David is saying. You lovely young Israelite ladies in your scarlet gowns and your gold jewelry, Saul made that possible. Before him, you were wearing rags and costume jewelry. And again, this isn't condoning any of Saul's sins. It's merely credit where credit is due. And more personal than that, David doesn't take the opportunity now to trash Saul. He wouldn't harm him while he lived, but neither does he harm him now that he's died. David doesn't lie and make Saul out to be a saint. He doesn't behave the way some people do it at funerals or wakes of people who are notorious sinners where they talk as if heaven just got a new angel. No, David does none of that. David neither magnifies nor maligns Saul. In fact, I don't believe David is really speaking of Saul as the man, but as Saul as the king. In other words, he may have nothing but disdain for the man, yet he has honor for the office occupied by the man. Because the office of king of Israel was a foreshadowing of Christ, holding that office gave honor to Saul that he definitely wouldn't have had otherwise. Now, when we compare what David says about Saul with what he says about Jonathan, wow, the difference is night and day. All David really says about Saul is that he had been a good warrior. And at one time, that was true. I mean, it wasn't really true in this battle, but it was true that Saul had led Israel to many victories over the Philistines. But of Jonathan, David expresses admiration and love. He admires Jonathan's military skill. You know, the ironic thing about Jonathan's death was that, it, as he says, it was on the high places. Israel was on Mount Gilboa, and the Philistines were below. You may not know anything about military tactics, but surely you understand the advantage of having the high ground. Israel had the high ground, but because Saul was too afraid to lead a charge, the Philistines ran up the hillside and took away Israel's advantage. So Jonathan was killed on high ground where he should have had tactical advantage. And in this Song of the Bow, David acknowledges Jonathan's skill, Jonathan's bow did not turn back. He was swift as an eagle and strong as a lion. But what David most poignantly expresses is a deep 
personal love for this man as one who, like him, is deeply devout and committed to the glory of the God of Israel. Brotherhood in the faith is an eternal bond. Now, liberals love to seize upon this passage and read into it some cryptic admission that Jonathan and David were gay lovers. But apart from being rank blasphemy, this is an admission that the advocates of such idiocy have never known the grace of God and the fellowship of the saints into which the Holy Spirit binds those whom He unites to Christ by faith. This chapter shows us the morally enlightening influence of God's law. Moral principles are greater than the perceived benefits of bending the rules. Liars, assassins, liars who claim to be assassins don't get rewarded. Moral rectitude is preferred over pragmatic benefits. Only God's righteousness teaches us to live by such lofty principles. Secondly, strangers to the covenant can never be relied upon to serve the purposes of God's kingdom. And finally, personal animosity can coexist with respect for the office the enemy occupies. David feared Saul greatly. Saul, David didn't trust Saul, but he didn't let the personal animosity between them degenerate into a hatred that mocked the man's shameful death. While David had no respect for Saul's personal character, he had nothing but respect for Saul's office. And in this, what a lesson he is for us. Let us pray.